The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where every week we look to give you the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your real estate business. Sometimes that information or inspiration comes in the form of just getting you questions answer getting you answers to your questions that would have been the right way to form that sentence and uh yeah today is q and a day it's gosh the month of january went so fast it feels like i was just sitting here <laughs> doing question and answer week but uh nope it's been a month so it is time for another one uh that is the day when there is no show if you don't ask your questions which you can do by calling 877-772-9658 877-772-9658 or alternatively you can send your question to askvina at gmail.com uh what's interesting is i usually walk into the studio with five or six questions that people asked via email before the show. And today I have one, one question. So your chances of getting your question answered today during the show are pretty good at 877-772-9658 or again at askvina at gmail.com. Uh, while we're waiting for some ahead of steam here behind these questions, just a couple of quick housekeeping things. Um, this weekend on Saturday from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., Cincinnati RIA is hosting an all-day how to get started buying and flipping notes and mortgages workshop with Donna Bauer, who has of course, been a guest here many, many times on Real Life Real Estate because she has been buying and flipping notes and mortgages for many, many years. Uh, you can get more information on that all-day class at CincinnatiRIA.com, CincinnatiREIA.com. While you're there, also check out next Thursday's regular national online meeting. So, so the third Thursday of the month is always our online national meeting. The uh, guest is Courtney Fricky, who did a show last year that was just more of a like uh, an X Factor investor show talking about all the different things she did. But at this uh, at this meeting next week, next Thursday, she's going to specifically talk about how she gets good deals from agents. Yes, now. Yes, in 2024. Yes, with 
MLS inventory at historic lows and all that competition out there that has made a lot of us ignore listed properties for years in a row now. Uh, she is getting creative deals and she is getting low price deals, not by doing what most people think when they think MLS, which is like just going through every day and seeing what looks good, but rather by having agents bring deals to her that they know something about that MLS and the rest of her competitors don't know about. So same website, CincinnatiRia.com. Just go to the calendar and you'll see all the stuff and then you'll be all all intimidated because you'd be like, are these people insane? They have meetings every single weekday of the entire month. And then also two Saturdays every month. Are they, are they addicted? What's going on now? Those are, those are mostly focus groups for our members, but the first and third Thursday is always general meetings, which are uh, open to the public. And the Saturdays are also open to the public. So you're looking for this Saturday and next Thursday. Again, it's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. 877-772-9658 is the number to call with whatever question you have about real estate. You can also send an email to askvina at gmail.com. And now I'm going to use up the one and only question that I have in my email box. And it's an interesting one. It says, good afternoon, Dina. This is Pete from Northern Kentucky, and I have a problem. The problem exists in my head. I am so stuck with analysis paralysis. I literally can't get out of my own way. I'll take any kind of advice, a swift kick in the rear, advice on what kind of liquid courage I should be taking, anything at all. So I really, I really liked that uh, email, Pete, because you are very clear on what your issue is. Unlike a lot of people that I talk to who say, well, you know, I mean, there's just no deals. Okay. That's not ever true in any market that there are no deals or there are no buyers or there are no good renters or there's, I'm going to wait until the interest rates go down or the market turns up or down, depending on where the market is right now. Um, it's, it's everything except, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm getting in my own way. There's not probably any single person who can give you that kick that you need. Uh, Pete, what you need is a community of people. And I'm not saying like you're, you're, you're so, you're such a a horrible case that it's going to take a team of doctors to fix you. I'm saying that being around other people who are doing what you are getting in your own way about doing is both inspiring, right? Because you see, you get to see lots of people talking about deals they're doing and issues they're working out and so on. And also, um, it gives you a support system, right? Cause you, you mentioned, analysis paralysis and sometimes that's big picture analysis paralysis like uh i just i can't decide which of all of these great exit strategies to do or which of all of these great ways to find deals to do and so i'm not doing any of them sometimes that's the level of analysis paralysis sometimes the level is more when you get down to the details of any given deal right it's okay no i'm I'm finding deals, but I'm not closing on any of them because every, I like I get stuck trying to figure out 
what it's worth and it could be worth anything between this and this and that bothers me and then I got to figure out like what the financing is going to cost me and I know there's like four different ways to get financing so I literally get I, I literally get so tied up in analyzing any given deal that I never make an offer on it and when you have a community they can help you to think through both of those sorts of things for yourself not for every real estate investor in the world because not every real estate investor in the world investor in the world should be doing the same thing uh, so I would strongly suggest Pete since you are apparently in the greater Cincinnati area that you join Cincinnati Rhea if you have not already and then you show up it's it's not that hard to show up since like most of the meetings I, I think there's uh, 20 meetings a month and 18 of them are online so it's not that difficult to show up like you could we have people attending meetings in their cars on zoom so um i think you just need to get around some people who can show you that there's a different way than what's going on up in your head but thank you very much for your question and your honesty and vulnerability uh, we need to take a quick break. It's question and answer week. You can ask any question you want about real estate at 877-772-9658. Again, 877-772-9658. Or just send it via email, askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is you which means it's question and answer week. 877-772-9658 is a really good way to get questions answered during the hour here, assuming that, you know, you're listening to it live in the hour on Wednesday night at five o'clock. I always wonder if the station gets calls because people listen to the question and answer show and they, and they and but they're listening to it on the podcast, <laughs> but, then, but then they call in because they're like, ah, Venus on Venus on the air at, two in the morning um no yeah you kind of got to do it during this hour uh another number that you or another way you can reach me is askvina at gmail.com um got a question from tony in columbus when you look back at 2023 what were the three major ways you find you found deals and what exit strategies did you use for them? What do you intend to do in 2924? I think that was a typo. Or maybe Tony is convinced that I am, in fact, a goddess and will still be alive 900 years from now. Uh, what do you intend to do in 2024 for your deal finding? If different than 2023, what was your biggest lesson from 2023? Uh, that's a boy, that's a whole lot of questions there, Tony. Um, so 2023, I did a whole bunch of deals that were um, more me interfering in other people's deals than they were, uh, you know, self-generated deals. I had a last year. I I split with a partner that I had been with for um many a business partner that I had been with for many years and um needed to kind of re re look at my acquisitions business. And in that process, I 
stopped temporarily doing the thing that has been my major deal finding thing for many years, which is uh, direct mail. And I will go back to that uh, here real shortly because I still am a strong believer that direct mail is the best way to generate off-market leads. But in, in 2023, I still did a whole bunch of deals and they were mostly by going to exchange meetings. And you know the one I'm talking about, Tony, the one that's on Friday morning. And just listening for other investors who had a property that was a problem or who uh, were buying a property but needed a partner or uh, there were a couple of occasions, I guess this would be thing number two, I sold a few properties in 2023 that I had owned for a long time and did 1031 exchanges and I found all the properties to exchange into in those exchange meetings. So... I know that's not a, a terribly satisfying answer, but I would have to like answer it one by one by one by one based on the deals. The general way of finding them was just let people know that I was in search of deals and I could help with like creative deal structuring if there was a place for me in the deal, um, you know, just interfering. <laughs> and and many times I was making offers to people who weren't even asking for offers. They were saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to refinance this property because I want to get some cash out of it. And I would interfere and say, well, tell me about the property. And they'd say, well, it used to be my house. And I'd say, wait, 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 you need to sell it because you're about to be outside of the time when you can take the 121 allowance and not pay taxes on selling it. So why don't you sell it to me? And then I will lease option it back to you and you can buy it back in a year at a higher, at a higher, I'll buy, I'll pay more than what you paid for it. And that'll be, you'll get tax-free profit and then I will lease it back to you. And at some point you can buy it back at a higher basis, that sort of thing. So lots of creative deals uh, last year and mostly with just straight up colleagues. Uh, what's different in 2024? I'll keep doing the same thing, but I will add direct mail back in. Biggest lesson of 2023. Well, that's a tough one because I don't know. The real estate business hands you new lessons all the time, even when you've been doing it for three decades. Um, I don't know. I think the biggest change in my business over the last four to five years that is just it's just a continuing thing has been. I've made an I've made an intentional goal every year of doing at least one new kind of deal that I had that I knew about but had not done before and I have specifically been concentrating on kind of the creative side of the business so in 2023 I did my very first uh, equity participation loan and I did another first kind of deal because I was thinking about that at the end of the year. And I can't remember what the other first kind of deal was. Um, but part of the reason that I'm so focused on that is because I find that the like the more ways that you know how to solve other people's problems, the more problems you can solve. There's just there's just sometimes when it's you got to have a sp very specific tool in your toolbox <laughs> to solve a problem. And I discovered as I started this process back in, call it 2019, 
that understanding something out of a book is really different than actually doing it with another human being and with all the other people who have to be involved. Like I didn't really understand rap mortgages. I could, I could show you a spreadsheet about how the return came out on a particular rap mortgage. I knew what documentation had to be in place. I knew, I knew from a book learning sense, a lot of stuff, but it wasn't until I did one and had to deal with the, uh, county not knowing how to record it and the closing agent not knowing how to distribute the payoff and all that sort of stuff before I really understood it. So that's why I'm, you know, every year I go, okay, this year I'm going to do my first pure option. I did that one in 2020. This year I'm going to do my first equity sharing loan. Did that in 2023. Um, did my first ma uh, master lease with option to buy in 2021. Now these were all things I could have explained to you prior to this, but they, I, I, I set out to go find a deal that matched something new every year. I sort of kind of feel like I'm out of creative strategies at this point. I'm not sure there's another one that I could do. So I will just go forward doing variations on what I've already done. So, um, yeah, thanks for letting me talk about myself for 15 minutes there, Tony. I appreciate your question. Uh, it is question and answer week. So 877-772-9658 is the number to call. You can also send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Um, got a question here from Bill who does not say where he is writing from. That is, uh, I'm, I'm hearing this more and more. In fact, I, I just was talking to, a. um, a relative uh, about a week ago about this idea of tenants paying rent using the various, I don't know what the general name for these things are, Zelle, Venmo, things like that. And, uh, you know, I'm getting these, you know, is it okay to have them pay rent that way? Uh, is it is allowed by the platforms themselves? And Bill has an interesting uh, twist on this. He says, for years, my tenants have paid rent using Venmozelle and direct bank deposit. However, when a tenant is delinquent and an eviction is filed, how can one prevent a tenant's deposit, a tenant just paying $50, okay? Because in a lot of places, for those of you who don't know, if you accept any payment from a tenant while they're under eviction, the eviction stops and has to be started over again. And I think Bill's issue is... Um, if the tenant knows that, then the morning that we are to go to court and I've already spent $150 on a lawyer and $150 on the eviction and taken the morning off work, they just are going to Venmo me 50 bucks and then they're going to show up in court and say, uh, you know, your honor, I, I paid $50 of this. I think that is going to be, uh, first of all, is, is that going to happen? it will happen to someone at some time. I promise you the chances that it's going to happen are not huge. Like I don't, I don't see this being a tidal wave of things, but it, it that is an interesting question because have you accepted it? Cause that's, that's, that that's really the issue is uh, with the courts is you accept 
accepted a partial payment. Well, did I accept it when it came in on Venmo? I don't have a choice to say no to these things if it comes in on one of these, you know, Zelle type apps. And I think that the law has just not caught up with the reality of how people like to pay for things and that eventually it will. Um, I, it might be that, you know, you have to be the test case here and say, I, okay, I do see that there's this Zelle deposit and I'm going to send it back right now, Your Honor, because I did not legally accept it. I have no, like, acceptance has a legal meaning and I did not accept it in the legal sense. It just, they just sent it and I just sent it back as you can see. I don't know why I'm holding up my phone to show all you folks who are out in radio land. I'm, I'm literally like, I'm, I'm, I'm miming what I would do in court, uh, and see if that works. I don't know if, uh, some of the platforms have a way to like approve an incoming payment. Cause that would, if it did, you could maybe create that setting. I don't know, but uh, interesting question, Bill. And yes, the courts will eventually catch up maybe in 10 years with the reality of what's going on in the world. Uh, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Tony in Columbus, who has called in. We can uh, I can also answer your questions at 877-772-9658 or via askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Question and Answer Week on Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's exactly what it sounds like, folks. You ask questions, and if I can answer them, I do. 877-772-9658 is the number to call. 877-772-9658, or you can send a question to askvina at gmail.com. We're going to go to the phones now and talk to Tony on line one in Columbus. Tony, welcome to Real Life hey. Real Estate. Thank you, Vina. Uh, first, I want to apologize for that email. I did it in a hurry because I wanted to make sure to get in on your show. And, yes, I want you to live as long as possible. So if that means 29, 24, let's have it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, first of all, I want to thank you for last night. I was at the Columbus event. And uh, let me tell you something. That training that you did last night on creative finance, I always thought of creative finance as being something that what we worked out with the seller, I really didn't understand or really appreciate how much it has to do also with how you get financing mm-hmm. for a deal. Mm-hmm. And, uh that was incredible. My wife was sitting next to me, and as you were going through those examples, I kept saying, you get it? You get it? And she's like, yeah, uh, kind of. I could tell she was getting like um, nervous about it. So I went to my iPad, and I pulled up Express Success, and I went in the back office, and I said, look at all these trainings by Zena on it. She's like, I could see a relief come over because she knew that we could go there and we could learn more about it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, yeah, it's um, I, I I kind of feel a little bad for your wife because you you've <laughs> well you've actually heard some of these words before oh, yeah. about creative finance, but so so many people the first time they hear about it, they're like, this oh, is this has got to be either illegal or unethical or fattening. I mean, there's something because if this were a thing, I would know about it already. And real estate agents, you know, will say that because they're like, they never said a word to this about us, to to us about this in our licensing classes. Yeah, but it's been going on for literally hundreds of years. It's very well legally understood. The fact that that's not the way most, you know, most, most, most people only ever buy a house to live in and they sell a house they're going to live in and they mostly do that Mm -hmm. by having 
you know, they go to a bank and get pre-approved and go find a house that meets the requirements for their loan and they, the bank brings the money. You realize that before like 1932, going to a bank and getting money to buy a house meant you had to put 50% down and also they would only carry the loan for five years. So how do you think most real estate changed hands back then? You know, you couldn't go, Mm -hmm. you can go buy a big old farm and put 50% down and pay it off over five years. The seller had to finance it for you or a family member or a you know, somebody who wanted to be a partner would would finance it for you, and we're just kind of carrying that on, and it goes on all the time, and people get suspicious or confused because it's not what they're used to hearing. Exactly. So, well, let me get to my question because I don't want to capitalize on the whole time. Um, we're going into an election year, and with an election year, you know, number one, things like, you know, some people market through PPC, and that's going to be more expensive because of, the election year, you see banner signs. There's going to be a lot more banner signs out there because of the election year. Mm-hmm. And then even with mail pieces, and I know direct mail, like you just mentioned a few minutes ago, is your preferred way of marketing, mm-hmm. where it's going to be a bunch of mail hitting people's mailboxes. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you do keeping in mind that it's an election year? Maybe it's something you do, or do you manage your expectations based on that fact? Yeah, it, it, election years have become interesting as the amount of mail Americans get drops off and drops off and drops off. I mean, 20 years ago, when you went to your mailbox, if you didn't have seven pieces of mail, it would be amazing, right? There was there was mm-hmm. some bills, there was maybe a personal letter from somebody, there were the usual circular things. Um, I sometimes go to my mailbox for five days in a row and there's no mail at all. <laughs> my, like my bills don't come in by the mail. If and if there is, it's probably an insurance company wanting me to like I don't know, change to their insurance or something like that. That becomes not true in election time. Right. <laughs> in election time, you definitely have um, lots and lots of mail, and you just expect it to be junk. I don't. I don't think people uh, really sit and go through all their potential candidates and go, hmm, which one of these should I vote for? They vote along party lines, right? So I right. I do worry that what's happening to my mail during heavy election season, which this year will be September, October, is that people are pulling the mail out and just sending it straight to the trash can without even looking at any of it. Mm-hmm. So what I will do is I will monitor the incoming calls. Like I will monitor you know how much went out, how much, how much, uh, how many calls are coming in. And if it drops off drastically during that time, I will probably put those into suspension until after the election is over. Because mm. I I, okay. I have a, a an assistant and a um, a CRM that literally will show me day by day, minute by minute, how many calls are coming in. Yeah, I know that CRM. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so it'll be really obvious if there's a drastic drop off. Now, if there's if there's a little drop off, I'm not going to worry about it. Mm-hmm. You know, a little. I, I know how many calls I have to get to get a deal, and if it takes twelve days to get that many calls instead of ten days, I'm not going to sweat it. But if if it's like okay, we've gone from ten to one. <laughs> 
<laughs> then right. and it's during election time, I'm probably going to say, yeah, we need to suspend the mail for a little while because it's not working. And it's probably because it's all going into the garbage along with the uh, election mail. So that presupposes that you have some type of expectation when you're doing direct mail in terms of the KPI that you expect mm-hmm. when you're doing it. Mm-hmm. to see that drop off right yes i mean we we know by type of mailing so like is it a driving for dollars mailing is it a pre-foreclosure mailing we know by type of mailing about what the response rate should be okay and also we can we can break it down to so no nobody's getting less than three or four pieces of mail unless they ask to stop right unless they say sure. please stop mailing me so we can we can look at the data and say letter one should generate this much, letter two should generate this much, maybe percentage of the people we mail. Now, some some of these lists, the sizes of the lists themselves will change from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, driving for dollars in particular, how how big is the list we're currently mailing depends on how good a job we did getting driving for dollars addresses. It could be a hundred, right. it could be five hundred. So you got to do it as a percentage. You can't just say, if I don't get five calls for my driving for dollars mailing, I'm going to stop doing it. You have to say, okay, I, I only got three calls, but how many pieces of mail did I send? Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm not going to ask you for your specific uh, percentages because... Uh... I, I would have to literally look at the CRM to tell you. Okay. Right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have it in front of me, but I, I, uh, that's fair. I that's could fair. I could tell you what it was if I uh, if I did. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much. That's that's good. That's good knowledge. That's good because this is my first election year um, for for many years, and uh, direct mail wasn't a piece of my DMO back in the time I was doing the real estate before. So this mm-hmm. is good to know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you for your call, Tony. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. And again, thanks for last night and uh, look forward to the next opportunity to learn from you. <laughs> you bet. Thanks. Listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing, question and answer week. Um, still, yes, looking for questions. Uh, 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com. Uh, got a question from Denise from North Carolina who is clearly listening to the show because she says you just spoke about selling a property and leasing it back from the buyer and then repurchasing the home. And you said in the next year, but actually really none of my lease option backs say you must buy it next year. It says you can buy it as soon as next year. Uh, is that strategy a good tax strategy to increase the deductions for a home that is owned free and clear? So this is the this is the issue with a radio show of limited time. Um, I have no visual aids, and I also, you know, obviously nothing you hear is actually legal accounting or other professional advice because. I'm going to say no is the answer to your question, but if you gave me a specific scenario, I might say, yeah, that could be. Here's the thing you have to think about, Denise. If 
the the specific scenario that I happened to throw out as one of the deals I did, the investor who was renting the property to a tenant had lived in the property. It had been her primary residence. And there's this rule called Section 121 of the IRS Code that says if you live in a property for two of the last five years and you sell that property, you can sell it for up to a $250,000 profit if you're single, $500,000 if it was a marital property, and you can have that money tax-free. So that is a really super good tax benefit that homeowners get. She had, she did happen to be in a position where she had paid very little for the property. She fixed it up, so she had a little bit of a higher basis from some of the improvements she'd done. But the house is literally worth a hundred to one hundred fifty thousand more than what her basis is. And she was getting to the end of that five years of that lived in it two for, of the last five years. So she was able to sell it for a profit, pay no taxes on it, pay no taxes on the profit, and then she actually likes the property, so she does want to buy it back, and that's that's why the the lease with option back exists on that particular property. I actually would have been pretty tickled to just buy the property for what I paid her for it, but uh, she she is... Um, going to buy it back. And when she does, she will buy it back correctly, which is in her LLC instead of her personal name. And then she will go on with her life, except when she buys it back. So uh, let's just put some fake numbers to it. Let's say I'm paying her 200 for it. She's going to buy it back for like 205 just to cover some of the costs of the transaction. And now her basis, because she paid 205 for it, is 205 less the value of the land. It had been literally under $50,000. So it was a good track strategy for her. And the specific reason was she used to live in the property. If you were to do the same thing on a rental, if you bought a property, you bought a rental 15 years ago for $50,000 and you now sold it for two hundred. dollars so that you could buy it back and have another base, have a higher basis, that's not going to be good because when you sell it for two hundred, you're going to owe capital gains tax on a. I don't know if you bought it ten years ago, maybe one sixty. Like you, you generated a profit that is taxable, so that you could put it back into your portfolio at a higher basis. That's probably not going to work out mathematically for you. It worked out mathematically for her because she happened to be a prior homeowner, if that makes sense. Um, having having a higher basis is, it was good in her case because she'll have higher deductions she can take. But the thing about basis and depreciation that I think people don't always get until they sell the property is all that nice depreciation you get. And I mean, it can be significant. I have a I have a property where the depreciation allowance is like nine thousand dollars a year. It's really it's a good tax deduction. Um, you have to recapture that when you sell it. It's not free forever. Never pay taxes on it. Money you actually when you sell the property, whatever depreciation you took, you now get to pay 
pay that. It lowers your basis. So you, you pay capital gains taxes on the, and actually depreciation is recaptured at a different amount than regular, uh, capital gains are. So pro- probably not. If I understand your question correctly, no, you don't want to sell one of your cheap properties, one of the properties you bought cheaply for more money so that you can buy it back and have a higher tax basis because having the higher tax basis will get you more deductions now, but you'll have to recapture all of that later on. If you're looking for tax-free ways to take money out of properties, the the good one is either sell an option on it or alternatively just borrow money. Borrowed money is tax-free. Uh, you're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Borrowed money is almost always tax-free. <laughs> See all all of these things. There's always a there's always a it depends. Um, you're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing Question and Answer Week. If you have a question, just send it in to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I, as always, am your host, Vina Jones-Cox. Uh, it's Question and Answer Week, and I have gotten a few more questions here via email, which I will strive to answer before the end of the show. It's always good to like send these even before the show to ask Vina at gmail.com because that way they're here waiting for me and I don't get to the point where I'm like, oh, going to have to leave some questions in the inbox here. Uh, this question is from Rudy's Rudy. He says, how do I, the wholesaler, know how to determine my profit after getting a purchase agreement with the seller and assigning my interest in the property, including my fee to a buyer who may not like my spread? For instance, the seller may sell me a property for a hundred, which is already too high for the buyer, leaving me no profit, or the property may be worth a hundred and fifty thousand, leaving me wiggle room for a say twenty to thirty thousand dollar fee, which the buyer may f- consider too high. How can I know these figures beforehand, and what or what not to pass on to my buyer? Um, Rudy, this question is actually really, really typical of a new wholesaler who doesn't quite get what buyers are paying for in a wholesale deal. And I, I, I deal, don't, don't worry about it. I deal with this same kind of misunderstanding several times a week, it feels like. And what, what I need to do is I need to shift your brain on something here. Your job as a wholesaler is not to go out and get properties under contract. Your job as a wholesaler is to go out and find motivated sellers, analyze their properties really carefully, and make an offer where you can assign that contract and make a and it's still with the assignment fee is a really attractive deal to investor buyers. Okay. So let me, let me unpack that for a second. Investor buyers have certain um, needs and expectations in terms of how, how much money do I need to make if I am going to invest time, effort, money, risk, all that sort of stuff into a property. And, Generally, investor buyers who are going to rehab and resell the house need to be getting it 
all in, this is what what they have to pay the seller plus what they have to pay you, at about 75% of the after-repaired value less the repair costs. Did you get that? 75% of the after-repaired value less repair costs. If I'm doing the show again a year from now and we've had a downturn in the real estate market, I might give you a different formula. But for right now, I'm going to give you the formula of 75 cents on the dollar minus repair costs is what your buyer can pay. Now, can they pay 90 cents on the dollar? Yeah. Should they know if they pay 90 cents on a dollar, they're actually probably going to end up losing money on that deal by the time they've paid realtors commissions and finance costs and so on and so on. People who are buying for rental have a slightly different way of looking at things. They do still like to buy properties with equity in them, which is what that 75 cents on the dollar of the after repaired value less repair costs generates. It generates equity. But they do a second look and say, and if I if I borrow the money to buy and fix this, is it is the property going to cash flow? So that's a little that's a little different. But if you if you are making offers to sellers where you have correctly determined the after repaired value, multiplied that by 0.75 and subtracted accurate repair costs to get the property into condition, the condition where it will actually sell for that after repaired value. That is what you are going to be able to consistently and reliably sell that property for. Okay. So how much are you going to make? It depends on how much below that price that you just calculated you have it under contract for. So let's say you have determined that a buyer is real likely to want to pay $100,000 for the property and you would like to make $10,000 in a wholesale fee. You need to offer the seller no more than ninety. You, 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 the, the tone of your email here implies that like you don't have a choice about what the seller is going to sell to you for. The seller may sell me a property for a hundred, which is already too high for the buyer to leave me no profit. Why would you put that property under contract? Why would you sign a contract where you knew because you'd done that formula that no, that nobody's going to pay more than a hundred and here you are under contract for a hundred. You, you don't you don't have to pay the seller what they want. You can choose not to pay them that. Now, I'm, I'm not saying you can force them to take less. I'm saying if a seller wants a price that you're like, nope, no, nothing in there for me, you can just say, okay, great. I'm afraid I can't pay you that much. I can give you the 90 I said I could give you. Um, let me call you back in 30 days and see how you're doing, right? So it's not, it's not, I'm looking for sellers and then I'm putting properties under contract for as little as they will let me. And then I'm hoping that a buyer will pay me more. That is not how this works. That's, that's how a lot of people do it, but ask them how much money they're making wholesaling, ask them how many properties they're putting under contract versus how many they're actually selling and closing. Cause you're going to find the answer is not many. The part about, okay, but I figured out that I could get a, uh, based on my formula, I could get 130 from a buyer and the seller, when they called me, they said they only wanted 100 and now my buyer might not like it that I'm making $30,000. You know what else? You don't have to sell to the buyer who cares that you're making $30,000. If 130 is 75% of the after-repaired value, less the repair costs, and your buyer says, well, you don't deserve that much. 
who who made them the profit police? Buyers like that do exist. They are they they have a thing in their own heads about what's fair for them to make and what's fair for a wholesaler make. And the reality is you can sell that deal all day long for one thirty. So if this particular buyer doesn't like it that you make thirty thousand dollars, you can say, Well, I'm sorry that you thought it was a good deal a minute ago before you knew how much I was making. And now you don't think it's a good deal, but I've got other buyers I need to talk to. I've actually taken people off my buyers list for having that reaction because they're thinking about it wrong. They shouldn't care how much money you make. They should care how much money they make. Uh, thanks for the question, Rudy. And I would strongly suggest maybe taking some real, some real serious, like it might have to be a weekend long or three days long or four days long, uh, real estate class that, that really explains all the logic and the techniques and the philosophy and all of this sort of thing. Uh, last question here is from Christy and it, good thing. It's not a question I can answer because we've just got like a minute left in the show. Uh, Christy says, I'd like to know the best source for accurate property availability status. I'm not quite sure what that means. Is that is that like, uh, is the property for sale or not? Uh, I've heard several complaints about one source whose information, has inf- whose information has info that is outdated by two years. I currently subscribe to another source and found out the information for the same property mentioned above is outdated by five years. Who has the best most accurate information on properties who has the most accurate skip tracing information. So um, Christy, I'm, again, I'm not exactly sure what a property availability status is. I kind of felt like you were asking quest- a question about how to, about the best source for running comparable sales. And the reason that I cannot answer that is because public radio, I can't, I can't promote any particular you know, do I have my favorite? Yes. Can I say, oh, you should go subscribe to this? Yes, I can. Um, but let, I, I will say this in general. I have never seen a prop, uh, one of these subscription programs that shows you sales and, you know, is this particular property for sale? Um, that was not outdated by at least a year, uh, not a year of uh, a month or two at any given moment, like, like sometimes it's two weeks. Sometimes it seems like it's a month. Um, and that is because they can only update as fast as public record can. So if somebody sells a house, it might take the County like a month to record the deed and get it up on their website, which means there's a month where the, even the service I use cannot tell uh, that the property has been sold. And then somebody says, well, they're outdated because you know, it's on Zillow that it already sold. Well, it's on Zillow that it already sold because the realtor told Zillow. The realtor knew about it before the county got it up online. So you got to you got to put up a little bit about that like that. Uh, we are out of time. Thank you to all the folks who sent in questions for today's question and answer week. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. <music>